Well, welcome to episode 73, everybody. My usual co-host, Chris Fisher, is unfortunately out sick this week. We think he might have the Rona. So please send him your best wishes. Uh, But joining me, I have a very special guest. I have Techno Tim. Hi, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Last minute, I uh, messaged Tim yesterday and said, yeah, Chris isn't feeling so good. Do you happen to be free tomorrow night? And uh, serendipitously, he was. So here we are. So... This episode, we're going to be talking about all things Home Lab. Tim just passed 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And as part of that, I think you launched a 100 Days of Home Lab initiative, which we'll come to in just a minute. But before we get there, usual plugs for things like the Discord. At selfhosted.show slash discord. We've got over 4,000 people over there talking about all things self-hosted, maker spaces, home assistant, all that kind of stuff. You all know as well that we've got a UK meetup coming up in August. The date did change due to some flight stuff with me. So the new date is provisionally August the 5th. We're still trying to find a venue. And now if you have any ideas about where we might host this thing in London, I've been ringing around a few places the last few days trying to find a pub with a big beer garden or something like that so that we don't have to hang out on like a village green or something. You know, the requirements are outdoors, has toilets, has beer. I think that's probably a pretty good recipe for a good meetup. So if you have any ideas about where we might do this in London, general area, let me know. I'm on Twitter at Ironic Badger. So remember, that's the provisional date is August the 5th, and I think that's about it. So it's probably about time we start talking about the 100 days of Home Lab. What madman came up with a 100-day, hour-a-day challenge? Yeah, uh, me, I guess. Uh, You know, 100 days of Home Lab is something that I've been noodling on for, I'd say, about six months. You know, I'm a software developer, and software developers have had a challenge for a while. It's the 100 Days of Code, and it pops up in my my feed everywhere. And I think, what what a great initiative. You know, you you form a habit uh, by doing something once a day uh, for an hour a day um, with a goal in mind and march towards that goal for 100 days. And by the end of the 100 days, you'll learn something. Maybe you'll learn how to program. Maybe you build a website, whatever it is. Maybe you'll learn that actually you don't like the thing that you signed up to do quite as much as you thought you did. That is true too. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, you might discover this is not for me. (laughs) Like I thought programming wasn't for me in college, but now it's programming for me out of college. You know, I had that idea of, okay, how can I get people in the home lab community, one, together and motivated and excited about, about doing stuff? I'm excited. I know a lot of people are, but, you know, just kind of bringing people together and the whole entire landscape of a home lab, if you think about it, it's, it's gigantic. But, you know, I, I kind of think of it as networking, storage, infrastructure, automation, a little bit of DevOps, some hosting. You know, it's it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, you know, that landscape is is rapidly changing, you know, especially in the last couple of years. If you think of infrastructure as code or uh, or anything or storage, storage now in Kubernetes, storage everywhere. It's all changing, you know, software-defined networks. And so I thought, hmm, I have 100K coming up, and what can I do that has, you know, has is related to 100? And that's what I thought. I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll launch something around then. Yeah, I was six months out, and I thought, you know what? Um, I'm just going to do what I do best and procrastinate <laughs> for, for six months until this, you know, this uh, 100K subs, if it ever comes. But it came pretty quick, so I had to get on the ball. Well, that's a nice problem to have. 
You know, I, uh, I'm i not sure if I've ever told this story on air, but I did a computer science master's. Uh, I was originally a trained musician and then did a few years at the Apple store and went and did a, a comp sci master's. One of the friends I made on that course went and did a PhD straight away afterwards. And his PhD was into defining DevOps. I don't know how he managed to swing that with his supervisor, but he did. And he got paid to do it. And I think this dude spent four years defining DevOps in his PhD thesis. Do you know what the outcome of the four years was? What's that? There isn't a definition. <laughs> it's too nebulous. I like it. I like it. I like if it. If only someone would pay me for four years to do absolutely nothing. That's right. I, I mean, sorry, sorry, Steve, <laughs> if you're listening, but um, <laughs> it's a it's an interesting thing that you raise seriously. That uh, DevOps it, in general means whatever you want it to mean. It really, truly, it does. You know, to some people, it means that you're a cloud expert. To other people, it means that you can write Terraform code. To other people, it means that you know all about networking, right? It just depends on the problem that you happen to need to solve that's in front of you this week. It's like almost like um, just like a buzzword, like a magic word that management don't have to hire specific people to do specific tasks. We want a generalist that knows a little bit about everything. And I think that's typically where DevOps comes in. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And it's, you know, it's it can be lumped as anything from getting code into production and whatever that means. It could be, a, you know, that's a huge chasm to cross <laughs> and it could be many different technologies. And yeah, it's a, you know, a jack of all trades type of uh, role, but very needed. Oh, you've you've used a database, have you? OK, so that means you're a DBA now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> So what kind of stuff have you got planned? I've seen you've done, you know, your, your launch video, your 100K subs video was pretty cool. You had 12 of the biggest home labbing YouTubers as a massive collaboration. You know, there's Wendell, friend of the show on there, uh, a bunch of other people, Jeff from uh, Craft Computing. What else do you have planned for the 100 days? I'm on day four today, <laughs> you know, but for me, it was just to kind of get people motivated about, you know, getting into Homelab, whether they are already doing it or rekindling that, you know, that uh, passion they have for it. Um, it was just kind of getting everybody on the same page. I created a hashtag for it. Um, and what I'm realizing through this hashtag is, is, is that one, people are using it. My, my Twitter's never been so active. I don't have a lot of followers. So I'm like, whoa, this is uh, how almost famous people feel. <laughs> what is the hashtag? 100 Days of Home Lab. It's small, but people are using it. And what I'm discovering through this is, you know, these these updates that people are giving are, are very similar to my daily stand-up, to my Scrum, you know, as a software developer. You, you know, if, if you do Scrum, you stand up and say, you know, what did I do yesterday? What did I do today? And, you know, do I have any roadblocks? And it's it's very awesome seeing everyone just kind of chiming in with what they're working on today, what challenges they're facing. And then seeing other people join in and talk about how you could solve a particular problem or, hey, how did that work out for you? It's just been very awesome. So I, I don't know what the long-term plan is. If I get to day 100 and someone is on day one, feel like that's a success. That means that, you know, this has gone longer than my 100 days and someone else's journey is starting now. And so, you know, there's a lot of people said, do I start with you? Don't I start with you? It's start when you want. Like, you know, just because my train's leaving today doesn't mean your train's leaving today. Your train could be leaving next week. Choo-choo. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I, 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 if I get to day 100 and I see a day one, that means this whole thing was a success because it's, it's bigger than, than my 100 days. You must have some kind of an overarching goal because, you know, the time I think about when I was really probably the most active in terms of 
development over the last few years was just before I emigrated, actually, I was I was pretty stressed about the, the move coming up, you know, England to America, and I just needed something to distract me. So I used, I spent hours writing Ansible playbooks to completely Ansibleize the uh, deployment of my server. And at the time, it was mostly Ansibleized, but I'd done it three or four years prior. So a lot of the stuff I'd learned, you know, as a consultant for a while, I'd learned some tips and tricks and I'd learned some new stuff. And I thought, right, I want to do it properly. And my goal was to do as much as I could through one or two commands to deploy the whole thing. Is there something like that at play for you here? Possibly. I mean, I, I've done some Ansible automation, I think just a, a couple of months ago, you know, I, I created an Ansible playbook to create a high availability Kubernetes cluster along with load balancers all in one, because I saw that as a pain point for a lot of the people that were using Kubernetes. So yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I uh, found a whole bunch of forks that were left abandoned and I, I made them work. And so I, you know, automated a lot of that. But with this, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, for me, it, it was really supposed to be kind of a, you know, a celebration video and at the same time get people involved. Uh, but long term, I, I honestly, I didn't think it was going to be, you know, turn into something as, as big as it is now. Well, you've got to stop coming on people's random podcasts and talking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's Stop true. promoting it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, it, it, it's a great initiative. Uh, I mean, if, if, if there was ever, you know, some learning company that wanted to do something and, and help people in infrastructure do something, I'd be all for it. But uh, honestly, no, no long-term plans. It was an idea that turned into a video. I got a lot of awesome people on YouTube to help me out. And that's where it stopped. For me, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's obviously still going. Sounds to me like you had this bright idea and you didn't think, what happens when I release this into the world? Like, do I actually have to follow through on this thing? That's true. I've, I've been, in fact, that's this show, you know, for me. <laughs> I've, I'm living it, baby. <laughs> that's right. I bet. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't think, how, how does this scale? What, you know, what's my long-term goal? <laughs> right. Which is ironic for someone who's as deep into Kubernetes as you are. Yeah. I mean, usually my, you know, my videos do okay over time, but this one did really good, really fast. And that's, that's not, you know, my typical, you know, release cycle for video. I released a lot of videos and tutorials on how to set things up uh, and deeper topics. So I get lots of views over time. Um, and, you know, usually I'll get some tweets and, hey, how did you do this? Or, you know, or someone on Discord will ask, how do I fix this? And, you know, basically like async tech support. <laughs> but with this one, it was like, no one needs my help. They're all doing it themselves. And but at the same time, they're all joining in. So it's 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 really unique from what I've done in the past. So at this point, I suppose it's worth kind of defining what a home lab is, and maybe you could tell the folks how you got into home labbing to start with, and you know that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a that's a huge topic. I even have a hard time describing home lab to people at work or anything else because I think that uh, you know that the the term has kind of evolved into a lot of things. The way I look at it is it's, uh, you know, when you think of, you know, if you went to school, you had a computer lab there where maybe that computer lab, you were able to set up certain environments um, and destroy those environments or build them up or do whatever you wanted to tinker in those environments. And that's kind of the idea, I think, behind Home Lab is that you can set up an environment, a safe place where you can set up an environment to, to tinker with tools or to explore new technologies or automate some some infrastructure or geek out on storage and networking. It's even turned a lot into self-hosting stuff at home too. People, you know, I, I say it too. They, they've kind of coalesced and 
sometimes I'll, you know, I'll say, Hey, yeah, I'm self like the website. I'm, I'm self-hosting it in my home lab, but you know, it's more than a lab then at that point, you know, it's, 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 it's borderline. Just make sure when you're tinkering, you don't take Plex down because right. the wife will come and find you. Oh yeah. Plex or DNS. Yep. That's, I hear <laughs> faster than my alerts. <laughs> it's true. How do I know the Wi-Fi is off? The kids are shouting. In my That's, right. That's right. That's yeah. right. All Plex must be done. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's so many things to so many different people. So it's really hard for me to, to kind of summarize it because to me, it means um, something different, but and to someone else, it means, you know, something different. But for me, for a long time, it's been just a place where I can spin up stuff and test stuff and tear it down without the fear of destroying, you know, the company's production. And a lot of times, if you work at a big company, you don't have access to a lot of this stuff, <laughs> either security wise or physically, you don't have access to a lot of the, the tools. And then on top of that, a lot of the times the architecture is just, you know, decided before you get there. So you're just implementing stuff. <laughs> Deleting a production VPC is a rite of passage, though. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. In our work, sometimes Kafka accidentally gets deleted in our lower environments. But The worst thing I've ever done, uh, I don't think I've ever said this on air, is I deleted a production load balancer. Ooh, yeah. And I didn't know what I'd done at the time. And then suddenly all the senior developers came out of the break room and were like, why are all of our alerts firing? And I'm like, I was working on the load balancer. Oops. <laughs> I've been there before where you're like, I did just make a change, but I hope it wasn't that. Yes. We made some changes to the CI process after that. So, I mean, you could say that Alex's screw up saved the company money in the long run. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you you raise another good point. Like, I think a home lab, it means different things to different people, uh, much like DevOps does, I suppose. I mean, to, to me, a home lab is uh, I don't have a set. I mean, I suppose I, I do because I didn't sell the dual Xeon box I retired a year ago yet. But I, really, a home lab should be separate from any kind of production services. You know, and I use the term production loosely at home, although maybe it's not that loose because I have stuff like Home Assistant now uh, and Plex, as we talked about, and a bunch of other stuff that I actually do rely on, you know, Home Assistant particularly to, to run multiple facets of, of my house. So a home lab, to me at least, is something, a space that I can just break stuff and it doesn't matter. And uh, you, it can come all different shapes and sizes, right? I mean, I mentioned I had a dual Xeon box that I could use as mine. People use Raspberry Pis. What other stuff? Oh, uh, anything. I mean, people are using old broken laptops without a screen. Uh, some people are using uh, old PCs. My my recommendation most of the time when people say I'm, I'm, I want to build a home lab is, well, just upgrade your current PC so you get an upgrade, you know, and on the machine you use the most and use the one that's sitting over there for your home lab. You know, have that be your first one and you get two for one. You get two for one. You get an upgrade on your main machine, then you get a pretty nice machine for your home lab. And that's probably going to outperform a lot of the things that you would you would buy otherwise you know, or spend a lot on. I was just thinking about upgrading, you know, consumer grade gear. And the thing that runs out first in a home lab scenario always is memory. Yeah. You always run out of RAM first. And, you know, you think about using an old laptop because it's got a built-in screen, a built-in keyboard, a battery for as a UPS, that kind of stuff. But it can typically only have 16, maybe 24 gigs of RAM if you're lucky. Yeah. That's not enough to do a whole bunch with. Yeah, no. Uh, but a lot of people getting into it are just getting started. You know, it might be enough to run a hypervisor, you know, three, four Linux virtual machines and enough to kind of tinker with with something else, you know, and not destroying their own production machine. 
but it, you know, it spans the gamut. Uh, there's used enterprise gear. Um, some of my old PCs got converted into rack mount PCs and now they're in my server rack, you know, all the way to, to new enterprise, which I I've even bought before super micro servers. Uh, sometimes they're pretty affordable, but then yeah, all the way down to raspberry Pis too. I have four or five of those. So it's, I, you know, I generally think of any, any, it can be any computing device, I think can be used, uh, mostly in in a lot of the same ways now over at wiki.selfhosted.show we have an ssh guest storage leaderboard at the top of the list we've got wendell with a petabyte who's clearly just showing off and nobody's going to touch that but i have to ask you tim how many terabytes do you have on your lan of raw storage oh good question i have a lot of ram my disk shelf alone has uh 40 terabytes I forgot you had that disc shelf. I mean, there's one There's one of your videos, it goes back about a year or so now, I think, where you do an amazing job of taking us through all the different boxes you have in your rack. And you've even got some pretty cool LED lighting in that server room, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's pretty wild. It's similar to... It's overkill, but it looks cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, when I first started making content, uh, a lot of gamers were doing it. And I, you know, I play games too. And I thought, uh, we can't let all the gamers have fun. People with servers can have fun too. And RGBs is how they have fun. No. Terminal's the only video game I need, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Or the uh, 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 Chrome, the, the dinosaur when you're offline. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll stick with 40 terabytes. I mean, I, I know I have, you know, a handful in desktops around here and Macs and laptops, but it's, I can account for 40 right off the top of my head. There's no way I'm getting close to a petabyte. I'm sure Gearling, Gearling is there now too. He has a petabyte. That's right. With his petabyte pie project. My goodness. That was a cool video. It was. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. But yeah, I can't touch those. <laughs> Now, I think the thing that I found you for first was Kubernetes content. You were doing a bunch of stuff with Rancher, I think, at the time, and K3S. As an OpenShift guy, you know, at work, obviously my propensity is to use OpenShifty type stuff, but actually I do like to try and keep my skills in the real Kubernetes world without a lot of the OpenShift magic that goes on with the routing layer and all that kind of stuff. And so that leads me down the path of looking at K3S. And I always, always, always find myself in this dichotomy of, I want to have something at home to learn on, but my goodness, is this complicated and overkill? It, you know, it is. Uh, uh, well, it could be. Um, but I, I ask, what it, you know, what is overkill? Is, is overkill 40 terabytes of storage? Is overkill a V8 engine in your car? Is overkill, you know, half a terabyte of RAM, you know, what, what is overkill? So, you know, yeah, I, I've made a lot of K3S content and you, you hit the nail on the head. Like when I, when I built my Ansible playbook for K3S, it was to solve a lot of the complexity of setting it up because there's a lot of complexity in just setting it up, let alone everything you know, need to know about Kubernetes later on. But um, I think K3S is, is a, one, it's a fantastic product. It's an easy, lightweight way, uh, air quotes on lightweight way to run containers on the edge. You know, with it, you get a full, mostly full Kubernetes API. And, you know, for a lot of things, it, it, it might seem overkill. You know, hey, I'm running one container of everything in my, you know, my, my Docker stack or Portainer or whatever you're using to manage your Docker containers. But what happens if you want to run two? What happens if you want to make sure that they're always up? What happens if you want to do that declaratively and, you know, create YAML for all your deployments so it's repeatable. 
how do you handle storage, you know, on, on your single node, single node's pretty easy, but you know, how do you handle it? Um, if you have more than one. And so, you know, Kubernetes asks a lot of those questions of containers and you're left to kind of figure it out. But for the most part, um, once you get going with it, I think, you know, like, like me, when I caught the DevOps bug or engineering bug or software development bug, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, you can go really deep on really fast and maybe never come back from it. It definitely is a lot of fun, but it, 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 there's a lot of learning involved. I always find myself thinking, right, I've got two or three Raspberry Pis sat in the drawer. And the whole purpose of doing this would be to have a highly available, I don't know, Git server, web server, whatever it is, basic services like that. I don't think I would do things like Home Assistant in in Kubernetes because it's, it's best suited as its own VM. And we'll just, we'll forget about that. But there are certain services in the in my overall kind of self-hosting world that would be pretty cool. At, you know, at the moment, I run everything on my storage server. So if, if a disk fails, I have to take that thing out and, and shoot it in the yard. No, I don't do that. I, I take the disk out and the, the machine's offline for an hour or two or maybe longer. If I'm doing some data transfer, I will actually stop all the containers on that box so that nothing's reading and writing to MergerFS and doing all that kind of stuff. And I find myself thinking in those moments, which admittedly is only once a month for a few hours at most, I think, oh, it'd be great if this uh, was self-healing and that web service had just moved over here and its underlying storage had also replicated and also done all... And it's just those all those extra thoughts of, well, but then I need to solve this problem and then I need to solve that one and then I need a load balancer and then I need to replicate the storage and all that kind of stuff. So... What's the lowest barrier of entry to a highly available Kubernetes setup in a home lab scenario? Oh, yeah, good question. So, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with all the challenges you'll start to face. Um, Those are the known ones. There are a lot of ones you don't know until you get into it. But the lowest barrier of entry, I think, the, the minimum available, there's a couple ways you can do it. With K3S, you can use etcd for your, your, your Kubernetes database, or you can use a MySQL database, which is external. At the end of the day, you need at least three nodes for Quorum for them to vote. But if you're using the MySQL version, you don't need Quorum because the MySQL database acts as your database. So you, nodes don't need to vote or it is the tiebreaker. So how does that work? Etcd is, is explicitly designed for Kubernetes. It, or at least it, that's the way it feels. I know it wasn't originally, but... It's very lightweight. It's very good at maintaining quorum and the performance at scale is excellent. MySQL, not so much. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. So if you choose the etcd route, it's going to be very chatty, um, but highly available. It's going to be replicating all of the data across all of those nodes. It will have some kind of performance impact if you're using Raspberry Pis with micro SD cards. Probably not the, the, the best storage for something that reads and writes often. But with MySQL, if you have it there, you can run that anywhere. It becomes your state for where these nodes go and and look at their state. And then your, your database for everything in Kubernetes. But I think the performance is, is good enough, good enough for, for nodes and good enough for, for K3S. I think otherwise they wouldn't have chosen it. I suppose I get caught up sometimes in, you know, thinking about this from my day job. And thinking that I must do things properly, I must do it with etcd. When actually, probably MySQL, certainly from your description, there sounds actually like 
in some cases it might be a decent choice so what do you do do you put mysql on its you know let's say you've got three pies running k3s do you then have a fourth that's just dedicated as a single node for mysql well if you if you're doing mysql you could do two nodes with a mysql database anywhere in the environment that it can communicate with doesn't even have to be a kubernetes node so you can have two raspberry pies and then your mysql database wherever anywhere else as long as it can reach you know uh, mysql over tcp and how's the complexity of setting up that replication uh, you don't have to do anything. There's nothing you need to do. With K3S, uh, all of that is obfuscated from you in general. Like uh, with etcd or, or MySQL, you don't need to know how to do that or how to set it up. Not saying that, you know, you might not have to troubleshoot it sometimes. Um, but for the most part, um, it's 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 pretty solid. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the etcd way because, you know, you, you, you can spin up nodes, add nodes. And I mean, you could do that with the, the MySQL version more industry standard too so if we if we come back to one of the original goals of learning right if you're doing things at home in a very custom way you could argue that certain businesses and certain shops will have a huge amount of custom code certainly older more legacy shops from let's say more than 15 years old let's say before the cloud was really a thing they'll have a lot of on-premise infrastructure that you'll go in you'll read the wiki if they have one and you'll scratch your head and be like why did you do it that way? Because 20 years ago, there was no other way, mate. That's why. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, there, there is that to contend with. If you think about doing the MySQL route, is it's, it's not an industry standard way of doing things, uh, whereas etcd is. So, you know, you've got a few pies now running K3S with, let's say, etcd as the back end. What next? So the next thing I, I highly recommend doing is going figuring out storage. Well, there's... Two pieces. It's choose your own adventure. Remember I said the terminal is the only video game I need, baby. You see what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So those are the two things. And I recommend people like figure that out up front. I know most people, when they build a cluster, they don't even have K3S in mind and maybe they do, but they're more focused on the service that they want to run. They want to run WordPress or Ghost or Plex maybe. And so they're really focused on that. And sometimes I have to remind people, okay, before you do that, figure out storage and load balancing, because that's that's tough to figure out. I would probably say figure out storage too, because almost every stateful application, so stateful applications in Kubernetes are ones that write state or keep state in memory. But for ones that write to a volume, to disk, you need to figure out storage. And you can do the Hey, put it all in NFS, but then you're taking, you know, you're taking this highly available service, K3S, and making it, you know, uh, putting in a single point of failure, which is probably your NFS. It's the same thing with MySQL too. And when we were talking about that earlier, the reason why I don't choose that is because you're just, you know, you're taking something that's highly available and all of a sudden you're making a single point of failure be your MySQL server. And then you have to make your MySQL server HA to make that HA. And so it just grows exponentially. It depends on how 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 rigid you are about making things highly available, and so you 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 have a lot of choices, um, you know. But for storage, it's really going to be up to you if you want to make it highly available. You could dump everything in NFS, and that's fine, or you could choose things like Rook, Ceph, or or Longhorn. There 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 are options. Why why didn't I take the blue pill? <laughs> that's, that's often what I end up thinking at two a.m. when I've started one of these ludicrous adventures down that particular rabbit hole yeah so let's presuppose that uh, we now have a running kubernetes cluster with a load balancer uh, with storage and everything's working we've got a completely empty cluster now what where do people find apps to actually run on this thing that are compatible with kubernetes 
Yeah, good question. So m- most, um, most, I'll say most, uh, air quotes, most containers that are, are built on Docker um, are compatible with Kubernetes because Kubernetes under the covers is now using a different container runtime. It's not important, uh, but it's compatible with Docker images and Docker containers. So one, anything you were previously running in Docker most likely is going to run in Kubernetes. I mean, that's how it was designed to work. Something you'll need to pay attention to, and I kind of hinted at it a little bit, was was you know stateful applications. You'll need to make sure that that application you have can scale. Everybody thinks like, oh, you know, I, I'm running Plex. The way to make it highly available is spin the replicas up to three. It's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. So if if things weren't built to be stateless, you're not going to be able to scale them. You'll get some other benefits, like they could bounce around on nodes, but you can only run one. So it's almost a bit like RAID in that regard, right? It's not designed to increase your resilience necessarily. It's designed to increase your uptime. That's right. So the whole sales pitch behind Kubernetes that kind of got me excited about it in the beginning was let's say you had a Plex instance running on node one and node two and three are just sat there chilling out, doing nothing. Node one has a hardware failure and Kubernetes is running a loop, constantly checking the state of these things. And every time that loop executes, it's saying, right, on node one, this pod exists, Plex exists, and it matches the state declared in the YAML file that Alex put in place. Cool. Everything's hunky-dory and it will carry on doing that loop. I, I don't know what the frequency is, but it's, it's many times a minute that that typically happens. Now, what happens when Node 1 has a hardware failure or drops off the network or just crashes if the application crashes for some reason? Well, Kubernetes is going to come around and do its health checks and make sure that everything's tickety-boo. And it's going to say, hang on a minute, the desired state over here doesn't match what I'm expecting. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to utilize a different node that matches the node selector rule that you've put in here. Let's say it's a node with QuickSync for transcoding, for example. Uh, not every node in your cluster might have a GPU available to do that. The loop will go around and it will say, hey, okay, well, out of the five nodes in this cluster, I can use these two. And now I'm going to take the Plex pod and I'm going to make sure it's destroyed over there, but I'm going to spin up a new one over here. And then I'm going to tell you that that happened in your log and alert you about it. That's generally speaking, the typical use case for a stateful application in Kubernetes. Like Tim was saying, it's not to have three copies of Plex running at the same time because the database writes. And like, if you think about how the data would flow in that transaction, you're coming in to watch video. Well, which version of the Plex runtime are you hitting? And then that version of the Plex runtime has probably got its fingers in the database somewhere. And how does the database know which one to listen to? And it can get very confusing very quickly, which is why a lot of dev shops have to architect things uh, in a way called the 12 Factor app. Now, if you're interested, go and look at 12factorapp.net. I think that's the website. Hang on. Yeah, yeah, good site. Good reference too. 12factor.net is the website. There'll be a link in the show notes. There are a few different ways to run containers on Kubernetes. Like you were saying, OCI compliant containers, typically that's mostly Docker containers. Uh, there are a few others under the covers as well. There is a project called Kubernetes at Home, which there'll be a link to in the show notes, Kate's at Home. Uh, and this is a fantastic resource if you're not familiar with it. Go check it out. You can go over there and download Helm charts and all sorts of other stuff to run applications on top of your Kubernetes cluster. And a lot of other smart people have done a lot of the legwork for you of thinking about how do I run an application that wasn't designed 
for the Kubernetes world to make it run in the Kubernetes world, stuff like user management. You know, we're all familiar with the group and user ID stuff from a normal Linux Docker host. There's some tweaks you've got to make in the Kubernetes world to translate that stuff across multiple nodes because it's not just typical Linux permissions, right? There's a there's an extra layer on top. And there's there's lots of other small gotchas like that, like, you know, like Tim was saying, you know, there's plenty of stuff that you don't know what you don't know till you find out you don't know it. And it's uh it's a deep rabbit hole, but it's one that if you've got any interest in, I highly recommend you give a look to Tim's channel as well as the Kubernetes at home stuff that's linked in the show notes. Yeah, like uh, I've, I've worked with uh, Kubernetes at home folks, uh, a couple of them there. I'm in their community. That's how I got bit by the flux bug, um, you know, and declaratively defining your whole entire Kubernetes cluster through manifest. And yeah, it's a great call out. The Kubernetes at home Helm charts are, are fantastic, especially for people self-hosting because they went after a lot of the services that people are self-hosting. Uh, and if you just want normal, you know, I shouldn't say normal, but publicly available Helm charts, um, that, you know, for services like Nginx and, you know, all these enterprise services, those are out there. Those Helm charts are out there. Uh, but what the Kates at home uh, Helm charts are, they're going after, they're going after Plex, they're going after, you know, Sonar, Radar, like all these services that people like to run at home and building charts for them. And if you even search some of the Helm chart repository aggregators, they reference their charts too. So yeah, they've been a huge help in getting me onto Flux, which is a totally different topic, but uh pretty far down the rabbit hole i got absolutely hooked by these guys when i found out i could run a factorio server on my kubernetes cluster i just thought it was the coolest thing in the world so talk to me a bit about gitops and flux and that kind of thing we've talked to obviously I, i rambled a lot a minute ago about you know declarative state and how there's this loop in kubernetes that is constantly checking the state of things gitops takes that to another level right it does um so gitops is is a lot more defined, I guess, than than DevOps. So GitOps is this idea that you define uh, your cluster state or your your environment state uh, in manifest, a hundred percent. And the way that you um, influence the state of a cluster or infrastructure is by doing it through Git. So, for example, I, I just went through this exercise. You know, I I needed to get um, let's just say an nginx container. I would Add an nginx manifest, um, whether I'm using Helm or or Kubernetes manifests, I would create that manifest. I would create that manifest. I would commit it to Git, and I would push it up. And then there are services within Kubernetes that say, "Hey, I I just got this manifest. I'm looking at the current state. I'm looking at the desired state, and I will apply it." And so GitOps basically says that you the only way you can influence state is really by um, influencing Git, but they say through a pull request could be anyway. Um, but now my my whole entire cluster at home is that way, and I think the benefit of that is is that I can reproduce my whole entire Kubernetes cluster by just saying you know kube control apply or use Flux to do it all over again uh, and rebuild my whole entire cluster. Now data is a different story. I would have to do some restores on data to get those those uh, persistent volume claims back. But at the end of the day, I, I have my whole entire playbook uh, for how to build my cluster. Y- you know, if you're running your own cluster, you can do one-offs and do all these weird stuff. You know, you know how it is to tinker. <laughs> That's just it. That's just it. GitOps at home might seem like massive overkill, <laughs> just like ansibilizing your server might seem massive overkill when it's just you. That's right. But if you take these principles into the workplace... I guarantee you it's going to make you more employable. You'll earn a bigger salary. 
But as a team, it just makes your life so much easier because you're not like, who's done this to the load balancer? Alex, was it you? <laughs> no, it's in Git. You can go and look at Git blame and you know that it was Tim that broke the load balancer, not Alex this week. Yeah, don't let don't let him. Yeah. And it's uh it's it's nice because you know, at places I've worked at, uh, sometimes developers have full access to Kubernetes, which which is fine. That's a choice made by the company. Uh, but anyone can then go kube control apply or kube control delete everything and then it's gone. You know, and, and so GitOps basically says, no more of that. We're separating our concerns. You know, uh, if you want to get things into Kubernetes, you do it through Git and then you use, you know, a, a, a controller or a service to apply those to Kubernetes. So it's it's very interesting. It's very it's very bleeding edge. And a couple of places are doing this now or a couple, you know, Flux is one, Argo CD is another. Um, and I'm sure there's a handful of others that are coming up. Even GitLab themselves does it. Portainer does it for Docker. I mean, this is a hot topic, uh, but it's it's really awesome. Uh, but at the end of the day, now as a developer, I'm like, okay, I can't, uh, I can't make changes to Kubernetes directly, which I'm fine with. I'm fine with process. It has upsides and downsides. The upside is, like you say, everything is declarative and it makes rebuilding stuff really, really easy. The downside is you have to make every single change that way, no matter if it's a one character change to a config file and whatever your peer review process is, you know, in a home lab, it's likely to be you going, yes, yes, mash, 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 yes, yes, yes. Whereas at work, you know, you might have to get your team lead to approve it and, you know, explain why you missed the semicolon off the end of a line or whatever it might be, you know, that kind of thing. So it has its upsides and downsides. I think for me, the upsides do outweigh the downsides simply because of everything we talked about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, my my notes section that I used to have on how to reconfigure my Kubernetes cluster in the case of an event is gone. It, it used to be a long list of Helm commands that I used to run, kube control, you know, uh, commands that I run along with manifest. manifest. And now, now that's just gone. It's just, no, my, my documentation is the code. And I... <laughs> I hate it when people say that, but it's true. Now now my code is the documentation and documentation's the code. There's there's no other way to do it. Well, it's the source of truth. It's the most up-to-date version of what's in production. I mean, the only other more truthful source would be actually production. But if you've been doing it all through GitOps anyway, they should be the same. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's pretty strict uh, principle, but I, I, I enjoy it. You know, Ar- Argo CD is another one that I, I, I've been wanting to play with. It's it's pretty cool. It's it's a lot more visual. You know, even before I was doing give up, GitOps, I would still deploy stuff through Kubernetes. I'd still use CI/CD, you know, pipelines, commit uh, manifests, and then have, you know, a kube control apply during CI. This is a little bit different, and it's it's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. It's fun to explore. <laughs> Jerry writes in, hey guys, in response to the Wi-Fi enabled e-ink device mentioned in episode 72, I thought you should check out pine64.org slash pinenote. Hey Jerry, I just want to say thanks for writing in with this one. I mean, I know the conclusion that Chris and I came to in the last episode was that for the most part, wherever you're going to want an e-ink display, there's going to be power and therefore a cheap tablet might make more sense. But if you really, really do want an e-ink display, you can go ahead and look at this Pine Note Developer Edition. It is $400. So what we were saying about uh, e-ink displays being expensive definitely holds true with this device, but it does look cool. And obviously, you know, supporting the Pine project is uh, a noble endeavor. Those guys do great work over there. So you can go ahead and take a look at the link in the show notes to the Pine Note. And Joshua also writes in, I've been running Linux since high school and I've been self-hosting almost as long. 
I am currently getting my master's in cybersecurity engineering, and I've been using the skills I learned to try and make my systems more secure. One tool I learned about recently is Linus. I think that's how you say it anyway, L-Y-N-I-S. This scans your configs and gives you suggestions to improve your security. Do either of you run any tools to help ensure you aren't making any obvious security mistakes? Now, Tim, I know that you do some stuff like this in your day job. I wondered if you had any suggestions for Josh. Yeah, great question. I was actually working on this today. There are a lot of uh, tools you can use to do analysis on uh, the things you use. For example, uh, I was setting up uh, container image scanning today to scan Docker containers to look for vulnerabilities, known vulnerabilities uh, that are higher critical, and if they were addressed or not. So there, there are lots of things you can do like that. You can scan them either at rest in a in a container registry, or you can scan them even during runtime if they're in Kubernetes. Um, and then if if you are writing code, there's a lot of static code analysis tools you can use too as well to to scan and look for. Uh, vulnerabilities in either your code or or dependencies that you're using for your code. Trivia is one that I've I've was using today to set up, and it's 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 really really awesome. And they they it's open source, and they do a lot of scanning of a lot of different types. They're kind of an all in one now, where they can scan code, dependencies, and containers. So now, when we see a video come out from you in a few weeks' time on that, I'll be like, hey, you heard it here first. You know, I think for me, cybersecurity is one of those things. Like, it's it's obviously a buzzword in certain areas, but just not being the tallest nail is the name of the game. Don't do silly things like open ports in your firewall you don't absolutely need. I mean, for me, since discovering Tailscale, I've actually been able to close every single port in my firewall. Like, I don't have anything open anymore, not even WireGuard like I used to, because Tailscale does all the outbound NAT punching that I need to get past my own firewall so I can connect to my LAN as if I'm, you know, here wherever I am in the world, which is it's just great. So stuff like that, you know, don't open ports in your firewall, I think is a super basic but really important principle. There's also stuff like using SSH keys or certificates if you want to, using TLS to make sure it is actually your website that you're connected to through Let's Encrypt. There's really no excuse these days not to. But I think beyond that, just just don't be the tallest nail. You don't use a silly, stupid password like password123. At least make some basic effort, that kind of thing. Use a password manager, that kind of stuff. I think that's all you need to do, really. So Jackin writes, uh, I love self-hosted and all the rest of the JB shows. I started listening exactly on the very last, last episode and I've been a fan ever since. Jackin, I, uh, I, I almost shed a tear on the last episode of Last. I've got to be honest with you. I know Chris isn't here. But I was a huge fanboy of JB for many years before starting this show. And uh, I owe a lot of what I, I can say and talk to about Linux, I think, to JB as a whole. So I feel you there, man. I feel you there. Now, uh, he continues, On episode 71, a listener asked about thoughts on alternatives to the Raspberry Pi. I think the Orange Pi makes a decent low-cost board. They sell for around 24 bucks, and you can get them directly from the manufacturer. Now, Tim, I know you're a, a bit of a pie fiend as well as I am, and Chris too. Have you ever heard of these orange pies? You know, I've I've heard the name, but I can't tell you how they differ. I can't. Uh, I yeah, I have lots of raspberry pies. I even have a touring pie too. Um, and uh, the only non-pie device I have is is an Nvidia Jetson. But I haven't heard of them. I need I I need to look into them, especially if if they have a better supply than raspberry pies right now. Well, that's just it, isn't it? Raspberry Pis are unobtainium. So no matter how much we might wax lyrical about them, if you can't find them, 
and it's pretty much no good to anybody. So, so yeah, maybe these orange pies are the way to go. They look like a pretty cool board. Uh, they're ARM64 based, which is, uh, you know, it can be a bit of a problem sometimes to find applications to run on these things. But for a small little headless box, uh, maybe they'll do the trick. Who knows? If you have been running an orange pie uh, in anger, please write in and let us know at selfhosted.show slash contact. Now, I want to say a huge thanks to Tim for stepping in at the last minute here to help me co-host the show. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me. Huge fan. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send people? I mean, I imagine you've got some channel on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Channel on YouTube. Yeah, just just Google Techno Tim or use your, your favorite search engine and look for Techno Tim or just technotim.live. That's an easy way to get a hold of me. Well, very good. Thank you very much for joining us. Don't forget as well that we have the London meetup coming up on August the 5th. More details to follow on that soon. And again, if you have a venue recommendation, please, I would love to hear it. As always, you can get in touch with us at selfhosted.show slash contact. That's the place to go to get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. I'm at TechnoTim Live on Twitter. Very good. And thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 73. Just a quick note for all of our SRE subscribers. This week, obviously, with Chris's absence, I don't think it's fair to ask Tim to do a post-show as well. Next episode, Chris and I will do an extra doubly long one just to say thanks for all your support.